doing, church? Doing good? Doesn't sound like it, but it gets better. Hey, uh, if you got your Bible, I hope you do. Grab it. Go to John chapter 5. Let me start out by saying happy Mother's Day to all the mamas here and everywhere. Can we give a big hand to the moms? Amen, amen, and amen. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, you know that the church is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ and, quite honestly, the prayers of some loving mothers. Is that not true? And so, moms, thanks for everything. Uh, husbands, kids, everybody associated to a mother do whatever she wants all day and all week. I would highly encourage that. And I know, moms, this is true, really, of all parents. One of the things that we really want as parents, moms, especially for you, is don't you really want your kids to represent you well in public? I mean, that's a part of what you want from them. That you want, you don't want them to embarrass you. You really don't. And, uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, like you go to the parent-teacher conference kind of thing, and the parent says something really positive about your kid. They're like, now your, your son or daughter, they're an angel. And you're like, no, 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 we're the Martins. Do you know the Martins? And they're like, no, really, they're great. Because you know how they act at home. And if you have to choose, you would rather, I mean, they could be a little devilish at home as long as they're an angel out in public. It's just true, right? Because you know what actually happens is they do represent who you are. I mean, they just do. You know those sayings like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? I mean, you know, it's kind of true. I learned this in student ministry, 15 years of working with teenagers. There would be times where I would be working with a teenager and I would be like, kid, what is wrong with this child? And then I'd meet their parents. I'd be like, oh, oh okay, okay. So uh, it's more of a genetic thing. So that's just true. So if that's true about us as a, as a family, I, I would say it's also true about us as a faith family. Because the Bible says that if we're in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. That's just who we are. And so, as sons and daughters of God, do you think we are representing our Father very well? In other words, if you were to go around Jacksonville and you were to ask people, hey, what's the th first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word church? You see, because the church is the body of Christ. The church are the called out believers that are to gather together that we are supposed to be the expression of who Jesus is on this earth until he returns. How do you think we are doing in representing Jesus? Because I think in Jacksonville, if you were to ask people, so what do you think when you think church? I think some of the words that would come to mind would be things like um, judgmentalism and hate and traditionalism and hypocrisy. And I wonder, I wonder if you ask specifically about 1122, when people hear the word 1122 around town, I wonder what they say. <laughs> One of the things they say is trendy. I was like, have you met me? I am the least trendy person I ever know. Okay, redneck maybe, trendy, no way. But I wonder what people say, like are we, as, as this local expression of who Jesus is on this earth, are we representing who he is very well? Because here's what I know. In a room this size and in the sanctuary and at Bay Meadows, I know this. You are probably sitting with multiple people on your row that have walked into a church that, that bears the name of Jesus, but their experience was nothing, nothing like it would be bumping into Jesus. I mean, there are people, we could probably all uh, just pass the mic around and spend all day just sharing uh, just kind of bad church experiences. You see, because the Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And my hope here at 1122 is that you would experience grace. Like Jesus was full of grace. That means he was full to the rim. You couldn't fit any more grace in who Jesus is. And he was full of truth. Not either or, but both and. And my hope and my prayer is that every single time somebody would stumble upon a gathering of the church, particularly this one, 
that they would come face to face with Jesus. They would bump into who Jesus actually is and not some caricature of a misrepresentation of who Jesus is. And I think we find um, what it looks like to bump into Jesus and find grace and truth in John chapter five. So that's where we're gonna be. John chapter five <clears throat> says this, beginning in verse one. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you back up to chapter four, you'll find out he's in Galilee. Galilee is north of Jerusalem. And so one of the things, if you back up in your maps of the Bible, you'll say, well, how come the Bible says that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, even though he's in Galilee and Galilee is north of Jerusalem? And here's why. When you go to Jerusalem with me one day, what you'll find is in all of Israel, Jerusalem is at the highest elevation. So no matter where you are geographically, it's always up to Jerusalem. I swear, we were there for 10 days. I walked uphill the whole time. All right, that's just how it goes. And so they're going up the hill to Jerusalem. Verse two, now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Bethesda means the mercy of God, which has five roofed colonnades, verse three. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Let me just get this out of the way. This describes our church. This is the church of 1122. If you haven't picked up on it yet, we are like the island of misfit toys among churches here in Jacksonville. That's just us, okay? I mean, seriously, look around. Everybody looks great. This is the best they've looked all week. It's just true. And everybody looks great on the outside. You do, I'm telling you, 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 you look great. And I can see you at Bay Meadows. Everybody looks great, okay? But the reality is, is on the inside, every single one of us, we're invalids, we're at some level blind, lame, crippled, we're all jacked up. And the reason I tell you that is this, is here at this church, you don't have to fake it here. You just don't have to fake it. And maybe you grew up in the kind of church where you had to fake it, you had to always act like everything was okay. Even if you know deep down in here it ain't okay. That's why you needed a savior. Because this is not true, at church it probably happened to you this morning right? You were late getting here. And it's the third week in a row you tried to get here on time and you couldn't. You've never heard the first song. You don't even know what we do at the beginning of the service. And the reason is because everybody's trying to get ready and mom's is supposed to be your day off. But if that, you know, your whole house burns down if you take a day off. And so you're trying to get your kids ready and you're trying to get everybody ready. And then your husband don't do jack, but get himself ready and sit in the swagger wagon, honk the horn, like, come on, we're going to be late, you know, and you're fussing and fighting and you're doing those fake Christian cuss words on the way here and be like, well, oh, ding fod, you know, you're making up stuff, you son of a biscuit, whatever it is. And you're yelling at each other and screaming at each other and you pull into the parking lot. And, you know, some of you might even, even give the number one sign to our parking attendants and and then finally you get up to the door and somebody goes, how are you doing? And oftentimes you feel like you got to fake it. Well, I'm just blessed and highly favored. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> so I'm just saying you don't have to fake it here. You can get to the front door and the usher or the greeter can be like, how are you doing? He goes, I'm not good. This is your place. Come on in, okay? You see, because Jesus came not for the healthy. If you think you got it all together, leave because you're going to ruin it for the rest of us that are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Look, folks, I got issues and I work here, okay? It's, and, and if you're going to fake it, I'm telling you, the fake you is doing just fine, but a real Jesus died for the real you and he can make a real difference in your real life, but not until you're ready to get real. And so <clears throat> there's this crowd. There's this crowd of blind, lame, paralyzed, and if you think that you've got to clean your life up before you come to church, that's like thinking you've got to make the bleeding stop before you get to the ER. You've completely misunderstood the whole point of the ER. 
And if you think by your own righteous deeds, you're going to clean yourself up before you come to the Lord and make yourself presentable to him, then you miss the whole point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is not that your imperfect activity can change your identity, but his perfect activity on the cross changes your identity from the inside. And once your identity changes from the inside, then over time, maybe not overnight, it begins to change some of your activity. So this is come as you are. But Jesus loves you too much to just leave you, leave you there. And so these people, they're gathering around the sheep gate at the pool of Bethesda. In verse five, it says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, 38 years. Now, to some of you, 38 sounds old, doesn't it? Well, it's not. It's really, really, really young. Can I get an amen? Amen, a very gravelly amen, right? And 38's young. But in the first century, 38 was old. Like the life expectancy was about 38. So this guy, basically his entire life has been at the pool of Bethesda. And think about this, you wanna, you wanna look at a hopeless, helpless situation. Here's a man for 38 years that was begging and crying and hoping for God to do something in his life. And for 38 years, nothing really changes. And not only that, if you'll go to Israel with me one day, I'll take you to the Pool of Bethesda and I'll take you to the Sheep Gate. And on the other side of the Sheep Gate is the Mount of Olives, which was a very popular place to hang out, which means this, is that every single week, this man saw religious people walk by him and by the Pool of Bethesda to get to the temple and they walk by him every single time. But this day is gonna be different. This day is gonna be completely different. He's been there for 38 years. Verse six, it says, and when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. And Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? To which if you take your Bible seriously, and I hope you do and don't just read over this stuff, that seems like a crazy question, does it not? I kind of want to be like, Jesus, of course he wants to be healed. The brother's been laying here for 38 years. What do you think he wants, a sandwich? I mean, that's what he's here for. And what you're going to see, if you look through the scriptures, you'll see there's no verse four here. It's part of the reason we use the ESV uh, because the, the, the biblical criticism in ESV is at a very high level. And so verse four was added at some other time. I'm not saying it wasn't was it true, but uh, it was not in the original text. And verse four says that oftentimes an angel would come and stir up the waters and the first one in the water got healed. So for 38 years, that's what this man is hoping and holding out for. And then Jesus has the audacity to look at him and say, do you want to be healed? Which is a legitimate question. Because I'm just here to tell you, 20 plus years in ministry, there are some people that need to be healed. They just don't want to be. And healing is right there at their fingertips. I mean, here is the one, the great physician that can heal anything and everything with just a spoken word. And there are some people that honestly, um, it's like their ailment, it's like their pain, it's like, it's like the thing that has held them down has almost become like a pet and defined them. And there's a lot of people, there's a whole lot of people that actually identify themselves now with their pain instead of stepping into the promise that God has for them. You see, some people don't like to change no matter what. The change is like a baby's diaper, you know? Like I know it's gross, but it's warm in his mind. I think I'll just sit in it for a while, all right? And you know, the moment I said that, you know somebody like, my brother-in-law needs to listen to this sermon. It's true that there are some people that just may not want to be healed. And the reality is this, because if that healing happens, then all their excuses are taken away for why they get to act the way they act or be who they think they are. And so Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? 
I want to ask you that question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed that today, this day, you could be healed forever, eternally? That every pain and, and, and every scar and every wound could be eternally taken care of by the same one that asked this man this question. And so here's how the man answers. <laughs> Verse 7. And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up while I'm going another steps down before me. Now, can I just tell you, what you're going to see here is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And thank goodness I'm not the Savior because I would be the worst Savior in the world. And here's why. If I ask you a direct question, the thing I do not want to hear is an excuse to why you cannot answer my direct question. I would be the worst. Do you want to be healed? Well, it's not my fault. Every time the water gets stirred up, I can't get in there. I'd be like, of course you can't, do because you can't walk. That's what I'm asking you. Can I help you with that? I would probably be like, just sit there another 38 years. Anybody else want to be healed? See what happens when you answer the question? Nah, that's what I would do because I'm wretched. Don't act like you wouldn't either. It's just true. You know you would. Nothing angers me like excuses and complaints. The Bible says in Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. So the moment somebody tries to complain to me, I've just asked this question. Hey, this thing you want to complain about, does that fall in the everything category? All right, then the Bible says don't. Don't complain. Have you ever noticed, um, have you ever noticed that, that when we are the offending party, we want grace, but when we are the offended party, we want justice? You ever notice that? That when we are the offended or the offending party, we lean into the grace of God. But when we are the offended party, we want to talk about the justice of God. Here's how I know this is true. This week, JP and I, we went to the grocery store. We got nine items, nine. One, two, five, six, seven, eight, nine items. We counted multiple times. And so when you get the nine items, what do you do? You go into the 10 items or less aisle. And the moment you pull into the 10 items or less aisle, what do you begin to do? You do what I do. You start counting. You're like, 11, 11, 11, 11. Maybe I miscounted. You know, I'm not perfect. That's 11. And doesn't the justice begin to roll up? You read the, you read the sign again. Start breathing all like you got asthma. It's 11. What time is it? About 11. I think it's 11. What time is it? 11. Look at my son and say, hey, buddy, what do you think the problem here? You think they can't read or can't count? Which one is it? Because obviously there's a problem, right? Unless, unless sometimes when you're in a hurry and you might have 11 items and you're running in and you're like, no, 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 but I Coke and Diet Coke, that's all in the Coke family. That should just be one. So I, I'm good, right? You, right? you see, but I'm telling you, when we are the offender, we want grace. And when we are the offended, we want justice. Praise God. What, what Jesus does here is he offers unmerited favor. This man has done nothing to be healed. And when he's given the opportunity to, do you want to be healed? He gives an excuse, not an answer. And the reality is, is there's some people good at making excuses. There's some people good at making a difference. Never both. And yet, what he gets is the unmerited favor of Jesus. So here's what Jesus says to the man. In verse eight, Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Get up, take up your bed. It was like a bed roll or like a mat, kind of like a yoga mat, first century thing that these guys would lay on so they didn't have to lay on the concrete. And he goes, get up, take up your mat and walk. 
Now, I gotta give this man a little bit of credit. For 38 years, he has had his eyes and his time and his effort and his attention on this pool that he's heard that if an angel stirs it up and he gets in first, that he'll be healed. And for a moment, he has to take his eyes off of what the world says that will bring him healing, and he's gotta fix his eyes on the great physician where all healing comes from. There's a lot of folks, and the reason you haven't experienced healing, whether it's physical or financial or relational or whatever it is, it's because you've been putting your hope into the wrong thing. Now, I hope you were here last week. That The Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above, which means all healing comes from God. And sometimes he chooses to heal people through a supernatural touch like he's going to do here. Sometimes it's through, the, it's through the miracle and the common grace of doctors and medicine and counseling and technology. Praise God. It doesn't matter. All the healing comes from him. And so Jesus says to the man, get up, take up your bed or take up your mat and walk. Now, I think about this kind of stuff all the time. I don't know, maybe it's because of my job. I hope you do too. When you read the Bible, don't just read over the stuff. Do you ever wonder why in the world Jesus tells him to take up his mat? Think about how nasty that mat is. I mean, think about this for a second. The brother's been laying on it for 38 years. It is gross, gross. It seems like Jesus would say, get up, go take a shower, throw that mat in the garbage, and I'll see you at church, follow me. But he doesn't. I mean, we don't even have a category for how filthy this thing is. It's not like the man can just pop up and go to the bathroom, right? I mean, that's where it is. And he's sweating and he's laying there. It's never been dry clean, it's gross. I remember my sheets in college, you know, I'd wash them like every semester and I showered and stuff and that was a situation, you understand? And that's why we have to get married so we can be clean and stuff. And so, guys, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, okay. So, uh, it's just true. And so I can't even imagine that. And so this mat for 38 years, this dude has been laying on it and it's just, na I mean, it is nasty. And it makes you wonder, Jesus, why, why don't you tell him to throw that away, man, and start his brand new life without that nastiness under his arm? And maybe it's because when he's walking around town for the rest of his days and people begin to see him, they'll think, man, I think that was that guy. You know, Pete the paralytic just lay by the pools of Bethesda. Is that him? Can't be him. It looks kind of like him, but that dude couldn't walk. There's no way this guy could be him because he can walk. And then they would see that mat and they would smell that mat and be like, oh, yeah, that's totally him. I wouldn't forget that anywhere. And maybe the reason that Jesus caused him to carry around that nasty mat is because that past nastiness is actually a platform for the glory of God. You see, the depth of the nastiness of that mat begins to show the world the height and the peak of the glory of God. That if the tomb is empty, then nothing is impossible. That even this kind of guy could be saved and he could get up and he could walk. And you know what that means for me and you? That means that every single one of us that are in Christ, that we are called to pick up our mat and walk, which also means that there should not be any person in here that is ashamed of the thing that God has saved you from. Because you and I were dead in our trespasses, but now we've been made alive in Christ. And the Bible says that therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore now there is, this is Romans 8, 1. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ was ultimately and finally condemned on the cross and he, he bore the full weight and sin debt for us. And when he says it is finished, that counted for every single person 
that would believe in Jesus. Every single one. And that when people see the nastiness of our past and our pain and our sin, and they see us walking around in Christ, then what that means is that if the tomb is empty, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. That anything is possible. Now, I'll tell you what Jesus did not say. Jesus didn't say, pick up your mat, walk, and occasionally lay it down and get back down on it. Because that doesn't make any sense either. You see, a person that can walk should never lay down in a crippled man's mat again. Which is true for every single one of us in our sin. That God has saved us from that. And because you were a new creation and because you are in him, then there's no need for you to go and lay back down in that nastiness again. Because it just doesn't suit you. Because he has called you to more than that. You see, every single person in 1122 that's in Christ should memorize Romans 8.1. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's why. Because you and I have a spiritual enemy, the devil, who tries to whisper lies into our life. And he tries to condemn us. And one of the primary ways that he tries to condemn us is to remind us of how nasty that mat is. And I promise, here's how I know, because I deal with it every week. I've talked to you about it a lot. I get the little whispers every week, primarily on Thursday and Sundays before I come preach. And what begins to happen is the enemy begins to whisper and say, hey, you remember that? And you remember this? And you know how how evil and vile you are? And if they only knew what was going on in here, they wouldn't listen to you. And based on Romans 8, 1, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I actually get to lean back into the enemy and go, actually, it's worse than you thought. You left out some stuff, bro, okay? I mean, you're just naming the sin, but you don't even know about the sin behind the sin, okay? Because you don't know what's going on in here. You can only see what's happening, okay? So you might want to add to your little condemnation list a whole bunch of other stuff. You see, the enemy loves to condemn. Condemn is a builder's term that means unfit for use. And you know what Jesus does? Since therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Jesus comes in and sees a building unfit for use by the enemy and says, you know what? I want to step into that and make that my own home. We'll call it the temple. I'll just invade that life and use it like crazy. And so one of the confessions that will help you like crazy is not trying to hide your sin, but when the enemy points to your sin and points to the past, you just point him to the cross and be like, I know it's worse than you think. My sin was so great that God had to send his only begotten son to die for it. And yet he loved me so much that he was willing to. Now, take your junk home. See you next week. Because it's just true. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think that's why he told this man to pick up his mat and walk. So yes, I am a great sinner, but I have a greater savior. That's why Jesus came to die. That when he said it is finished, it counted for me. So Jesus says to the man, get up, take up your mat and walk. Verse nine, And at once, this is awesome, and at once the man was healed and he took up his mat and he walked. He picked it up and he goes walking around town with it. We're going to find out in a little while that the man ended up in the temple. First time he could ever go to the temple because the first time he was ever clean. And whenever anybody saw that mat, what he could do is he could point to the miracle that God had changed his life. There's no shame in this man's game anymore. You know what this means? That because God is sovereign, that he is in control, that you've never done anything to surprise him or catch him off guard. Because of that, an almighty sovereign God, he can use your pain for his plan. Even if it's self-inflicted pain, that an almighty sovereign God can use what the enemy intended to kill you and he can use it for his own glory. It's just true. We see it here all the time. 
My wife used to uh, lead a high school girls small group back in the day when I was the youth pastor at Beach. And at the end of every small group, she would ask for prayer requests. And <clears throat> this girl in her group would every week would say, hey, can we pray for my brother? He's a train wreck, lives in Arkansas, works on a farm. He grew up in church, but he's half homeless and worthless and on drugs and an alcoholic, and it's just a train wreck. And for two years, they'd pray for this dude every single week. You fast forward a bunch of years, and I'm in a restaurant here in town, and I walk in and I hear, a, hey, Pastor Joby. And I'm like, hey, what's up? You go to 1122, we start chatting. And the dude says, hey, I just moved to Jacksonville. I'm from Arkansas, and uh, I used to work on a farm. And I sat down and said, let's talk about food plots for deer, okay, because it's very spiritual. And so that's what we did. So I was trying to get him to do a little tractor work for me. So then he ends up, he, uh, he joins my disciple group, surrenders his life to the Lord. When he finds out that we're launching the church of 1122, he says to me, I'll do anything to be a part of that movement. I'll clean the floors and scrub the toilets. And I was like, brother, you're hired. And he did. And that's what he did, uh, I don't know, a year, year and a half. And then one day at the end of the service, the girl that was in Gretchen's small group back in the day was in town for a little while and she's down front at the end of the service saying hey to Gretchen and then this guy that's on our staff now he walks up and he's like hey bro hey sis and Gretchen's like are you kidding me I've been praying for Walker Day for all of these years and Walker Day now isn't on our facilities team Walker Day now he's a major part of our care team and every single week God uses the self-inflicted pain that Walker went through you see, when Walker, the reason he got to Jacksonville was, was that he came here to party, got a DUI, couldn't go back to Arkansas, and then he found himself in like a recovery house here, and then found himself on staff. And that brother points more people to Jesus in a week than I think I do in a year. You see, God can use our pain even for his own glory. And now not only is Walker on staff, but also his sister is on staff too here. You see, I also know it's true in my life. I've told you a million times that my football coach led me to Christ at Camp Pine Hill Baptist Retreat Center. One of the details that I leave out about how I got there, and I won't go all into the details, you don't need to hear the craziness of my world, but when I was at that time in my life in high school, my parents were getting divorced and, and it was just kind of a train wreck and we didn't have like a good place to stay in the summer. And so Coach Bull Lee said, y'all come to camp, you can work camp and cut grass and stuff. And so for seven weeks, that's what we did. We went to Camp Pine Hill Baptist Retreat Center. And it was the pain that we were going through of my mom and dad busting up that landed me there. And God could use even that pain for his own purpose. Not only did I meet Jesus there, it's also the place where I led my very first Bible study ever. I'd been a Christian about three weeks. I was 15 years old. And Coach Lee said, Joby Martin, you in charge of the Bible study. And it was like college counselors and I'm 15. And he gave me about six minutes warning. So if you've ever been on a mission trip with me, you know how we start off every morning with 30 minutes of quiet time alone with the Lord? That's where that started. Because the very first one, I was like, welcome to Bible study. What we're gonna start with is about 30 minutes alone with Jesus. And so, and then I'm like, that's how it started. That's where I preached my very first sermon. Standing in the back of the room, you know, just minding my business. And Coach Lee comes up to me and says, Joby Martin, when this song's over, you're going to preach the sermon. What? The song was, was I am a C. Any, any camp people know this? I am a C. I am a C-H. I am a C-H-R-S-D-I-N. This is before we had people like Ben Williams in real worship. You 20-year-olds, y'all got it made, man. Singing good songs and stuff. We had the I am a C. And I was from Dillon, South Carolina. I was in the 10th grade before I realized we were spelling I'm a Christian. You understand? I didn't know. <laughs> I thought, I was like, I thought we were Baptists. I know we speak in tongues. That's awesome, all right? And so 
And sure enough, I said, like, what do I talk about? He said, boy, that's easy. You talk about Jesus, you talk about 30 minutes. Go. Okay. And I went, preached. When I came, when I got finished, he said, boy, when you preach the word, I see you come alive and I see them come alive. You ought to go into ministry. And I was like, I will never work at a church. Ha, ha, ha. So, <laughs> but all of that was in one of the most painful seasons in my life, in my family. You see, God can use our own pain for a platform for his glory. It's just true, and it could be true of you today. Listen, even if it's a self-inflicted wound, that what God, that God can use what the enemy intends for evil, and he can use it for his own glory. That's what the gospel tells us over and over and over. I mean, was not the darkest day in history when God showed up on this earth and we killed him? And then God says, I'll use that exact event. And on the third day, he will overcome sin and death. And the darkest day in human history is the pinnacle on which we understand the love and grace of Jesus Christ. It's just true. So here's this man. And he's walking around for the very first time. He's got his bedroll under his arm. And then he runs into some religious people. If this is a movie, this is when the soundtrack changes. All right, the Jaws theme or something. Starts right here. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Are you kidding me? That's what they want to talk about? They have to know this guy. They've walked by this guy for 38 years, and here's a miracle has happened, and they can't see the miracle because of the mat. They're more concerned about their legalism than they are their life change. They're more concerned about keeping the rules than the possibility that now this man can have a relationship with God. Man, I hope and pray that's not you. Is it you? Do you see the mat or do you see the miracle? Jesus did not come for us to obey more rules. He came for us to have a relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when you have a relationship with Jesus, he rules over your life. And then you don't actually need rules because you obey him because you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you stumble and when you fall, he picks you up because he's a good dad and he loves his kids. But I'm telling you, religious people, religious people, oftentimes all they can see is the legalism and the rules as opposed to seeing the life change and the relationship. I mean, what a shame. See, there is... <clears throat> There has been one time, one time as the pastor of this thing that I've invited a, a couple to no longer attend our church. And I know you think that sounds mean, and it is mean. The word pastor in the Greek also means shepherd. And the job of a shepherd is to lead, to guide, to love, to feed, and to protect. That's what shepherds are supposed, supposed to do. And sometimes that protect part gets a little nasty. You see, because what a shepherd is supposed to do when a wolf shows up is you don't pet a wolf, you don't tame a wolf, you don't domesticate a wolf, you don't try to train a wolf. See, the shepherd had a rod and a staff, and sometimes he'd take that end of that staff and crack that wolf on the head. And so, so it kind of went down this way. This, these people wanted to come and meet to me, with me about my preaching. Now, if you don't think my preaching's great, you should talk to my mom, and she will clear it all up for you, okay? <laughs> so I get it, whatever. But <clears throat> here's the... Here was their problem. They, they led with this. They didn't like that we didn't have like a pulpit, a big pulpit here, and they didn't like the way I dressed. And I was like, listen, this is the best I got. And since Hope's Closet opened, it got way better. So thank you <laughs> to you for bringing good stuff. So, but their main beef was this. They said, why you gotta be so funny? 
Why are you trying to be so funny all the time? I mean, I think what's happening is people aren't here to hear the word of God. I think they're here just to be entertained and laugh a little and then, and then leave. And we know some of those people. And some of those people haven't been going to church very long at all. They just started showing up. And if you keep doing this, it's going to keep growing and keep growing. And those, those people, those people are going to pollute our church. And I said, oh, let me extend to you the right foot of fellowship. There you go. All right. Here's why. Because if the polluted people got to leave, you got to find a new preacher because I'm still polluted a little too. Now, when I surrendered my life to Christ, I was justified. My sin was paid for. In the meantime, I am being saved by the sanctifying process, which means I'm not quite there yet. You too? Anybody struggle with some stuff? You want to read Romans chapter 7? What I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, these things I keep doing, I want to do good. And evil is right there with me. You know who wrote that? The Apostle Paul. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a good Christian. That's why when he gets to Romans 8, 1, he says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I won't be, all the pollutants won't be gone until I breathe my last here and breathe my first in heaven when I'm glorified. And so this place, this place is for people that are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And then in surrender, we say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Yeah, I need a savior I need a savior because I am a sinner and he is a great savior. And so what these religious people are doing is all they, all they can see is the mat and they cannot see the miracle. This is what I mean when I tell you things like God's not in love with some future version of you. He loves you right now. But once Christ invades your life, you don't get to stay there. You begin to grow to be more like him and more like him and more like him. When the spirit moves in you, there will be some sins that you will not be very good at anymore. Some of you have already begun to experience that. You used to cuss like a sailor. Some of you still cuss like a sailor. Some of you are sailors, whatever, okay? And then you've, you've stumped your toe and you went, oh no. And you're like, what just happened? <laughs> you're growing, something's happening. Or you get into the public's line and you go, well, 12, they're probably having a hard day. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm becoming one of them. That's right. You begin to grow in Christ. But too often, too often what religious people do, and what I mean by religious is this, is people that think their imperfect works are gonna earn them a right standing before God. That is called self-righteousness. And the Bible says, the Bible the gospel is not that your activity will change your identity, but it's that when your identity is changed by the activity of Christ, then you begin to change from the inside out and eventually your activities begin to line up with the identity of who you are. And so they look at this man and they're like, man, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your mat. And look what he does. I love this. Verse 11. It's so simple. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. He's like, well, what was my idea? But the guy that healed me, if you heal me, I'm just gonna do what you say. That's what he's doing. I, he doesn't even really know it yet. He's saying, I am being obedient to my relationship with Jesus, not to your religious rules. You see, here's what's just true. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. Only the creator gets to identify you as who you are. And you and I live in a world that is lorded over right now by what the Bible would call a father of lies. And he will lie to you. And the number one lie that he wants you to believe is that you are your activity. 
He wants you to believe that you have done this thing that has eternally separated you from God. But the gospel says that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of the Father. And he wants you to believe that you are too far gone. You see, these religious leaders, what they would do, any religious person that thinks that those people should not come to our church, those people should look at Jesus and say, on the cross, Jesus, you're wasting your time. Because I don't think Jesus would say that. Jesus says, whosoever would believe could be saved. So here's what this means. I think a lot of you here have been believing a lie that comes straight from the pit of hell. And what I'm saying is only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. That means you are not your addiction. You're not. I know it feels like it someday. I know it feels like it rules your life some days, but you are not your addiction. And you are not your past. And I know it may haunt you in your dreams, but you are not your past. And you are not your sin. Your sin does not define you, your savior does. And you are not your orientation. And I know everybody in your world is telling, what, telling you what you should and should not be doing about that, but you are not your orientation and you are not your struggles and you are not your divorce. And you're like, well, it's the biggest thing that's ever happened in my life. No, it's not. Not if you're a Christian. Jesus dying on the cross is the biggest thing that's ever happened in your life. And, and you are not your affair. You're not. You're not your affair. That doesn't define you. And you're not your abortion. And you're not your failure and you are not your bankruptcy, and you are not your rape, and you are not those things. Either the things that you have done or the things that have been done to you do not define you. Not if Jesus is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. You see, and also, you're not your success, and you're not your promotion, and you're not your 401k, and, and you're not your job title. And you are none of those things. You are who Jesus tells you who you are. And when you actually begin to see yourself for who you are and whose you are, it will change everything about you. So I've done a little Bible study this week, and this is going to take a minute, but I don't care. It's just a whole bunch of declarations of who the Bible says that you are. And right when you think I'm about halfway done, I'm just getting started. And the reason I want to read all of these is because it is, it's like a comprehensive declaration of who you are if you are in Christ. Here's what the Bible says. It says, you're the salt of the earth, that you're the light of the world, that you are a child of God, that you are a part of the true vine, a channel of Christ's life, that you are Jesus Christ's friend, that you are chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit that you are a slave of righteousness, that you have been enslaved to God, that you are a son of God, that God is spiritually your father, that you are a joint heir with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him, that you are a temple, and that has nothing to do with what you look like in a bathing suit. Can I get an amen? Very high pitch. Amen, good. <clears throat> that you are a temple, a dwelling place of God, that his spirit and his life dwells in you, that you are united to the Lord and you are one spirit with him that you are a member of the body of Christ, that you are a new creation, that you are reconciled to God and you are a minister of reconciliation, that you are a son of God and you are one in Christ, that you are an heir of God since you are a son of God, that you are a saint. You hear that, Catholics? You're a saint. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. You can take off that, uh, the necklace of the other dead saint and you can get a necklace with your own name and call your Catholic grandma and be like, hey, it's Saint Toby from now on, grandma, all right? Because the Bible says in Ephesians 1, 1 that you are a saint, that you are God's workmanship, his handiwork. You were born anew in Christ to do Christ's work. 
that you are a fellow citizen with the rest of the family of God, that you are a prisoner of Christ, that you are righteous and holy, that you are a citizen of heaven, seated in heaven right now, that you are hidden with Christ in God, that you're an expression of the life of Christ because he is your life, that you are chosen of God, that you are holy and dearly loved that you're a son of light and you are no longer a son of the darkness, that you are a holy partaker of a heavenly calling, that you are a partaker of Christ and you share in his life, that you are one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house, that you're a member of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you are a people for God's own possession, that you're an alien and a stranger to this world in which you temporarily live and you're an enemy of the devil that you're a child of God and you will resemble Jesus Christ when he returns, that you are born of God and the devil cannot touch you, that you are not the great I am, but by the grace of God, you are what you are. You've been justified, completely forgiven and made righteous, that you died with Christ and you died to the power of sin's rule over your life, that you are free forever from condemnation, that you have been placed into Christ by God's doing, that you have received the spirit of God into your life, that you might know the things freely given to you by God, that you have been given the mind of Christ, that you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to God, that you are valuable and you should be treated as valuable, that you have been established, anointed and sealed by God in Christ. And you have been given the Holy Spirit as a pledge, guaranteeing your inheritance to come. And since you have died in Christ, you no longer live for yourself, but for Jesus Christ, that you have been made righteous, that you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you, that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him that you were predestined, determined by God to be adopted as God's son, that you have been redeemed and forgiven and you are a recipient of his lavish grace, that you have been made alive together with Christ, that you have been raised up and seated with Christ, that you have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit, that you may approach God with boldness and freedom and confidence. Why? Because he's your dad and dads love it when their kids come running to him. That you have been rescued from the domain of Satan's rule and you have been transferred to the kingdom of Christ that you have been redeemed and forgiven of all of your sins, that the debt against you has been canceled by Christ in you, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, you should know that full well, that you are firmly rooted in Christ and now you're being built in him, that you've been made complete in Christ, that you've been buried, raised and made alive in Christ, that you died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ, that your life is now hidden with Christ in God, that Christ is now your life, that you have been given the spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline, that you have been saved and set apart according to God's doing. And because you are being sanctified, you are one with the sanctifier. And check this out, that he is not ashamed to call you brother or sister, that you have the right to come boldly before the throne of God and to find mercy and grace in your time of need. And you have been given exceedingly great and precious promises by God, by which you are a partaker of God's divine nature, that you are loved by God. He's a good dad. That's who he is and you are loved by him and that's who you are. Amen. Now, either you are who he says you are or God is a liar. Those are the only two options. And so what that means is this, is that any thought or any emotion 
or any religious leader that tries to tell you something different than who Jesus says you are is telling you a lie from the pit of hell. You are not those things. You are who Jesus says you are. And that's why you get up and walk. That's why you pick up your mat and you walk. There is no shame in your past. That in Christ, your past pain is a platform for the glory of God. So take up your mat and walk. And my hope and my prayer and my goal is that every single person that walks into any of our gatherings or bumps into some people that would call themselves Christ followers that that are a part of this movement called 1122, that if they bump into us, that they would only bump into the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. The grace to hear, get up and walk. And the truth to say, no, 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 no. You should never lay back down in that mat. It doesn't suit you anymore. You see, that's why this thing is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a movement for all kind of people and all color people and all orientations and all backgrounds and all, I mean, all kind of thing. No matter who you are, if you fall in the all people category, then this movement is for you. And the reason is because Jesus died for all people. And we refuse to look at him on the cross and say, hey, you're wasting your time for that one. That's not how we do it here. Now, we're not just a gathering of all people just to be a bouquet of humanity. What a waste of time that is. We're a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. Not for you to just be okay with where you are, but that Christ would invade your life and change everything about you. And the first thing that he would change about you would be your identity, that you would know that you're his, that you're his. And that's for anybody and everybody. Nobody in the kingdom of God should walk with a swagger or a limp because it's not by our own doing that we're made righteous. It's by Christ's righteous deed on the cross that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, that's the kind of movement, that's the kind of place 1122 is gonna be. And listen, I was, this church has been deeply shaped by two major failures on my part early in ministry. One, I was on a, a summer-long mission experience in Kenya, Africa. We were coming to the end of my trip, and they had this like really nice restaurant dinner, steak dinner thing set up for us. And I was going into the restaurant, and these, these impoverished little boys were trying to get my attention to get help, and I totally ignored them. And the, and the uh, waiter said to me, don't let these boys bother you. Come in. We've got something nice for you. And I shut the door on them, and they've bothered me the rest of my life. That's why we do Compassion. That's why we sponsor over 5,000 kids, okay? The other major failure in my life as a, as a pastor, there's been many, but the ones that have shaped me, is this. I was 21 years old, living in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You may have heard this story before. I have promised me and others that I'm gonna share it every year because it defines a big part of who we are as a church. So I'm 21 years old. I live in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The reason I live there is because once you get out of Dillon, you never go back. You know what I mean? You just don't. Because my daddy used to say the best thing to come out of Dillon, South Carolina, I-95, that's a fact. So, you know, we go to Myrtle Beach. If you've never been to Myrtle Beach, don't go. There's no reason to go. It's the Redneck Riviera, but, you know, people go. And so there I am. And I had three jobs. And the reason I had three jobs is because I was 21 years old and I wasn't going to live with my parents and I was going to try to pay for myself. So that's what I did. And so I waited tables at Barefoot Landing and uh, I... Uh, I was a youth pastor at a little First Baptist Church inland about 25 miles uh, from Myrtle Beach. And so I would do that on Wednesday nights and Sundays all day. And then I also was like the front desk guy at a little gym, World's Gym right there. And so uh, I spent the majority of my time in the mornings and stuff at World's Gym and I would come in and open it up and I would like, whatever, 
gym people do, and I'd make the shakes, you know, and that kind of stuff. And so the owner of the gym, he, was, he had a great business mind, and so right across the street from World's Gym in North Myrtle Beach was the Crazy Horse Strip Club. And so he went over to the Crazy Horse, and he said, all right, ladies, you got a free membership here at World's Gym. And so every day about 10 o'clock, all the strippers would come into World's Gym, and about 10.05, about a million paying guys would come in right behind them, okay? It's just true, all right? So now <clears throat> what began to happen as the days began to turn into weeks is this, is that that category of people became like individuals that I got to know. Because after they would work out and the guys would gawk at them and all of that, they would come and they would sit at the desk with me. And usually the majority of the time I was working on my youth talk. And so I would just kind of share my Bible study that I was gonna be sharing with our high schoolers. And I just thought, you know, if, if, we can, if, I, if, if I can communicate it to them, then we'll be, you know, people I can understand, they can understand, it'll be understandable. And, and then they would want shakes, so I'd make them protein shakes and stuff, and we, got to, we began to get to know each other and be friendly. And they did not have a category for me. 21-year-old, like, workout guy in North Myrtle Beach, and I wouldn't party with them. They'd be like, why don't you come see us at work? I'm like, probably not, but you can come see my work, you know, that kind of, that was kind of our, our relationship. And what I began to find out about these girls is that um, their stories were very, very similar. This might not be true for everybody that works in that industry, but here's what I found out. <clears throat> um, one is that they all had kids and none of their children knew what they were doing for a living because they were ashamed of it. Secondly, uh, they all had two names. And about three or four weeks in, I would find out their real name. I'd be like, oh, Susan, it's not Bambi? Your name's not Bambi? Okay. <laughs> and if your name's Bambi, I'm sorry, you got a stripper name. What am I gonna do, okay? So <laughs> it's just true. <clears throat> um, all of them that I knew there, that I met there, every single one of them either had to drink something or take something because they couldn't dance sober. None of them, this was their plan. Not one of them when they were growing up as a little girl thought that's what I wanna do when I grow up. And every single one of them, this was a short-term plan they thought and then they felt like they were stuck and had been at it way longer than they ever intended. And so we would talk about Jesus and just life and this sort of stuff. And then as we get towards the end of the summer, one of the girls says to me, cause I would invite him to church all the time, you know, just kind of in casual conversation as I'm trying to talk to him about the Lord. And uh, one day this girl says, one of the dancers says, uh, hey, I'll go to church with you. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> I didn't really think this thing through very well. Cause like at my church, my first Baptist Church, very, very traditional. Uh, I mean, they would think this was crazy town because I don't have on khakis and I would get in trouble because I didn't wear a tie. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was that kind of church, you know. And I remember thinking, how do you uninvite somebody from church? Because I don't know if this is going to be a great experience for her. And I didn't know how to do it. And she said, uh, I tell you what, I'll drive. And I was like, well, see, I got to get there real early because I do the announcements. And so maybe I'll just meet you there. She's like, no, I'll pick you up. And so sure enough, Sunday morning, she pulls up. This is the mid-90s, and she pulls up in a, in a convertible white Corvette. And I thought, perfect, we'll just slide right in First Baptist and nobody will notice. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so when she got there, I said, well, I'm at least driving. And so she scooted over, she let me drive her car. It's about 25, minutes to the, 25 miles to the church, it took me about 11 minutes, and so we got there fast. <laughs> and she had a daughter, she had a daughter that was with us, and... Uh, and and I gotta say, uh, she put on her Sunday best, but, but just to be honest, in her Sunday best, she looked like a stripper in a sundress. She did. And she was heavily invested into her career. Everybody with me? All right, so, <clears throat> take a minute. There he goes. All right, so, 
She had on like, you know, I mean, she just big old stiletto pumps like this with like a goldfish in it. And I was like, I don't know about that. But anyway, so here we go. So we're, we get to church and we go and we drop her kid off. And then she and I walk into the main service. You know, they're playing like organ music and everybody's just dressed all the way up. And here comes the youth pastor and his guest. And we come walking in and immediately the stairs and the comments. I mean, most people at least try to hide it. It was like that church wasn't even trying to hide it. It was just, I could feel it like crazy. I know she could. And so we went through the service. I have no idea what we sang. I have no idea what the guy preached on. And then when the service was over, with her sitting right there with me, uh, one of the deacons came up to me and says, we need to meet with you in the pastor's office right now. Now, deacon in that church meant power broker. Deacon in our church means servant. And so I said, oh, go, get, you know, go get your kid, and I'll meet you in a second. I just got to go handle something. And so they took me into the pastor's office, and the, and the board of deacons was there. And they said, how dare you? What are you doing? Bringing someone like her to our church. And they began to talk about my position as youth pastor and the kind of example I was setting. And just, they just went through this whole list. And here's where the failure comes in. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I was more concerned about the applause of man and their approval than the approval of God. I, what I should have done is stood up and said, hey, listen, who are you to tell Jesus on the cross that what he did didn't count for her? But I didn't. I didn't. I just tucked my tail and kind of bowed my head and said I was sorry. And, and then it gets worse. I, I, I get out to the car, and she's leaning against her car, just tears streaming out from under her sunglasses. And her child is sitting in the car with a picture of Jesus that she had colored that morning in Sunday school. And she said, y'all met about me, didn't you? And I lied. I said, no, 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 we had to do this other thing. I just lied because I was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed of who the church was. I was embarrassed of myself. And so we're in the car, we're driving back, it's super awkward, it's really quiet. And so I'm just trying to have casual conversation. I said, so what do you think about, the, what do you think about church? Right, and she said, I've never felt more degraded in my entire life. At the church. I've never felt more degraded in my entire life. And just to put it in context, the night before, she's dancing on a pole with no clothes on for a dollar from a stranger. And she's saying, if I had to compare that thing I went to that had Jesus' name on it where I felt nothing but shame and condemnation, I'm never going back there again. And she didn't. Normally, when I tell stories, this is where it gets awesome. It never gets awesome. She left that gym. I never talked to her again that summer. I moved away. And she never, to my knowledge, attended another church. Why? Because when she walked into that place, there was a lot of people, a lot of religious people trying to do religiously the right things. And instead of seeing a potential miracle, all they could see is a mat. And I decided... If I ever have any kind of influence, real influence at a church, it will not be that way where I'm going to be the pastor. That's why this church is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means all people, all kind of people, all everything, whatever, whatever category the world has tried to tell you makes you an enemy of the church, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Whosoever would believe in Jesus can be saved. This is a whosoever kind of place here, no matter what. And so, 
You've come to the kind of place, hopefully, that you will experience grace and truth. Grace and truth. We want to love you like Jesus does. It says your past does not define you. Your sin, your struggle, your mistake, whatever you want to call it, it does not define you. But we also want to love you enough to tell you the truth, to say do not lay back down in that filth and mess because Jesus has saved you from it. There's no need to lay back down in it. So whoever you are, you are welcome here. Whoever whoever you are. And you're not just welcome, you're invited. You're a part of the family of God. And so I want to ask you what Jesus asked this guy. So do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed from whatever it is, whatever that thing is you thought that would label you for the rest of your life? Do you want to be healed? Because when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for you. It counted for you no matter what. And if you want to be healed, eternal healing is available to you right now. That that you can be forgiven, made clean, and adopted into the family of God right now. Would you please close your eyes and bow your head. And if you would say, Pastor, that's me, I am ready to be healed. I'm ready to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I admit that that the, the mat that I came here on is a mess and I'm ready to get up and walk and no longer be defined by my shame, but be defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am who he says I am. If you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, would you just raise your hand high and say, Jesus, here I am. I want to be healed. Our good and gracious heavenly Father, God, I thank you and I praise you that you came on a mission for sinners like me and everybody else too, God. And Lord, I thank you that there is nothing that we could do to separate us from your love. All we have to do is receive it, surrender our lives to you, and then God, you begin to change everything. And God, I pray for that precious daughter of yours, wherever she might be, even in this moment right now. God, maybe maybe your gospel has chased her down and transformed her heart and the life of her daughter too. And God, I pray that the church of 1122 would always, always, always be a place. When people came in here, God, they would bump into the love and the grace and the mercy and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you would please stand and... uh, and we're gonna respond. And we respond around here in a few ways. One of the ways we respond is we pray. Some of you got some junk, you just need to come cast upon him. And he says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. And then we bring our tithes and our offerings, our first and our best. And we bring our first and our best because he first loved us by giving us his best in Christ. And know this, every time you partner with 1122 financially, what you are partnering in is to always to be the kind of place that is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that when people come into this place, they they are not met with condemnation, but they are met with the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna, we're gonna join our voices together and we're gonna sing. And we're gonna sing a truth that would change your world forever if you'll believe it, that he's a good father. That's just who he is. And that you were loved by him. That's just who you are. And if you believe that, everything changes. Let us respond.